0: This is Conceptions and Misconceptions in Studying the Gospels with Dr. Dan Gertner, Professor of New Testament Studies at Gateway Seminary. Today, we're looking at the temptation of Jesus found in Matthew chapter four, Mark chapter one, and Luke chapter four. I'm your host Tyler Sanders, and to kick things off, Dr. Gertner, can you give us a, a little orientation to the text? Tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what's going on.
1: Sure. Thank you for having me, Tyler. It's um... I think the first thing to always remember when reading the Gospels, and this one's no different, is is to remember that this is about Jesus. And uh, we always know that, but sometimes we lose sight of that. But we first want to ask, what is this telling us about Jesus? So we remember that when this narrative is being told, there are a lot of things we can get out of it. There are a lot of things we could understand about it. There are a lot of things that we might want to ask about the text and ask of the text, But remember that the gospel author is trying to tell us something about Jesus. And so um, he's not necessarily trying to tell us about other things, about what we can and can't know about the devil, what we can and can't know about temptations, and all kinds of other things. There are a lot of things that might occur here, but not all the things that he's trying to tell us. So ultimately, he's trying to tell us something about Jesus. We also want to notice some things that occur um, like biblical authors, the way they want to emphasize things. You know, they didn't have uh, highlighters. They didn't have bold print. So the way they emphasize things is by repetition. So what we see here repeated is this question about Son of God. Uh, yeah. So this, this, the, the issue that's driving this is about Jesus being Son of God. Mm-hmm. And we also, whenever you look at any passage, you want to understand the context. So where has Jesus just come from? And then where is he going? So where Jesus just come from is the baptism. And what has just happened there is he comes out of the waters of baptism and this voice from heaven. And, and we all know who the voice from heaven is. right? Um, and it's God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So God is saying that Jesus is the son of God. And now what happens immediately after that is Jesus is in the wilderness, and there's question about him being son of God. Hmm. So it's important to recognize that this whole thing has a context. So Jesus is a son of God. There's no question about that. Um, And so as we read the temptation narrative, we need to think— Matthew's not questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God, and actually, I don't think Satan is questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. Hmm. Um, there are different ways to translate this and to understand this if. In other words, I don't think Satan is saying, "I'm not sure if you're the Son of God. Could you please prove it and then and then we'll'll we'll, I'll make a I'll make an assessment right. I think he's saying a better way to understand this if." is in the sense of since. In other words, mm, like because, I, if you're the Son of yeah. God, prove it. Yeah. Show me. In other words, yeah. since you are the Son of God, do this. And In other words, the, these temptations make no sense if it doesn't presume that Jesus is the Son of God.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So
1: because you're the Son of God, do this. Because you're the Son of God, do that. So in terms of framing it in terms of the big picture, number one, we try to understand the context, or we understand that it's saying something about Jesus. So it's not primarily about me and how I face temptations. Mm-hmm. We try to understand what it's saying to ancient readers about Jesus. We're trying to understand where it occurs in the narrative. God has just said, Jesus is the son of God. Okay, that's a non-negotiable. We got that. Um, we look for repetition where the author is emphasizing something. Okay, Satan is saying, son of God, son of God. So this whole thing is about... Jesus being Son of God, and yes. so that that gets us going out of the gate.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, maybe maybe a good way to kind of take a next step would be uh, let's compare a little bit between uh, the the accounts in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So uh, I think we're going to start maybe in Matthew. Uh, Mark's account is very short, uh, but Luke's is uh, Luke's is about the same length, but it is a little different. So what are some of the things that are the same? What are some of the things that are different?
1: Sure. Um, well, first of all, when we want to make some comparisons between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we recognize, first of all, we're going to need to recognize what we're doing. Um, it's sort of like if you were to um, compare go, compare like a major sporting event, a major event in a hockey game or a baseball game or something like that, you can have eyewitnesses Witness the same event, maybe maybe a major home run or a a a, a fantastic goal or a fantastic save or a shot in, in tennis, and they can describe the same event, and even have some different emphases, some different chronology. Uh, they might be sitting in a different place in the stands, and they can all be completely accurate, but yes. their accounts are going to be can be totally different. Yeah. They're not going to be verbatim identical. In fact, if they're verbatim identical, you're assuming somebody's copying from somebody. Right. So right. we're going to see that their their accounts are different and actually their order is a little bit different. Right. So yeah. when we look at when we look at Mark, for example, mm-hmm. Mark's gospel is noted for being kind of rapid fire. Yeah. He likes to say and immediately. And immediately. And immediately. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of urgency. Some of his accounts are a little longer, but if it's not a place where he wants to dwell, Jesus is often running to the next thing.
0: Yeah, um, so we see that twice. Really, right here.
1: Yeah, so immediately he drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. He was with he was with wild beasts, and then okay. next thing. So yeah, whatever Mark wanted the reader his readers to get from this, it didn't take him much. Yeah. So he didn't need much space to do it. Mm-hmm. For Matthew and Luke, we see a couple things that are unique to them. Um, Matthew or Luke has uh, Jesus be, being uh, full of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he has the order of the temptations reversed
0: yeah i thought that was
1: fascinating
0: yeah because they both start with the bread um but then you know it seems like matthew's account progresses kind of it seems intensity i think was the word i was thinking of um it certainly increases a couple different ways but like even just the height right like the first temptation, it seems like they're on the ground, then they're in the temple, then they're on a mountain. It's like growing, growing, growing. But then also you have, you know, this, uh, this sense that of like, it, it seems small to turn, uh, I mean, it would definitely be a miracle, but it seems smaller to, to, to turn stone into bread. And then the next thing being like, uh, uh, you know, when he's on the temple, he has this temptation, you know, just throw yourself down, you're gonna be okay. And then the last thing is the, the big temptation, right? Worship me, you know? Luke flips the second and third one so that they end at the temple. That was the only thing I could kind of see that that seemed to be like a, a, an important distinction is maybe that that was, that was what Luke was trying to do is show the final temptation being connected more towards the temple. What do you think the the difference there is?
1: Well, we can sort of see, um, well, one of them is chronological and one of them is topical. Hmm. And the gospel authors tell us which one is which. It's actually Matthew that tells us which one.
0: Really? It's a very I I little that. difference. Where does it say Oh, I'm looking at Luke right now. Where does it say, what's the indication in there that, that it's is the chronological? word then? I see.
1: Matthew so, is like, the then. Um, yeah. At the beginning of verse 5. Mm hmm. At uh, the beginning of verse 10. Yeah. So, then is a sequential word. Yeah. So, that indicates sequence. So, they're both inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're both Mm -hmm. entirely historically accurate. It's just saying that for whatever purpose, and Matthew could have rearranged it too, and it still would have been just as accurate. For whatever Mm. purpose, Matthew chose to preserve the historical order, uh, the sequential order, and Luke, as we know from reading, remember, Luke in his preface says that he writes for Theophilus and he presents to him an orderly account of the things that have been, that he has has researched. So Luke's saying that, when he says that in Luke 1, 1 through 4, he's saying that, well, sometimes things are chronological, sometimes they're not, but there's always a reason. I always have a reason for how I'm putting these things. There's there's always a, a, a purpose for how I'm ordering things. So sometimes we can know what that purpose is. Sometimes we can't. So why does Luke go from, he goes from um, being hungry Mm -hmm. and in the wilderness. And then he goes to being in the, um, it's strange, in Luke's account, it doesn't say he takes him up like Matthew. He says he takes him up
0: to a high mountain. It just says he shows him the kingdoms
1: yeah he go, he takes he took him in Luke 4 verse 5 the devil took him up yeah up where it doesn't say <laughs> he just yeah. takes him up and shows yeah. him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time um and and this is another interesting well we can get to this later um if you will worship me all this will be yours um and then he ends at the temple. Um, yeah. Why does Luke end at the temple? Well, and I thought Matthew ends at the mountain.
0: Matthew ends at the mountain. And, and the other, and I, I guess I guess that was kind of, that stuck out to me as like, potentially he's ending at the temple. Maybe that's an important reason. But the other reason I guess could be that like Luke's order is, you know, the questions are basically, um, you know, if if you're the son of God or, you know, since you're the son of God, and then, you know, the question of like, will you, you know, you worship me and then it ends again on the son of God question uh, where Matthew goes, son of God, son of God, you know, worship, worship Satan, basically as the Lord. So I guess that could also be potentially, you know, uh, something Luke is aiming for is like, he wants to reemphasize the same question again of like whether, whether Jesus is the son of God, the answer of course being yes. You mean for Luke? I'm sorry. Yeah. Luke. Yeah.
1: Okay. It's interesting the way um, Luke ends his account in mm. chapter four, verse 12 is very different from how Matthew's ends. Yes. About how, about the closure.
0: Mm.
1: Um, when in, in Luke four, 13, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So now nowhere else in Luke do we have Satan showing up. Hmm. Actually, nowhere else in the Gospels do we have Satan himself showing up. Hmm. Now, what we do have, what we do have is when Jesus is taunted at the cross. Right. That is in Matthew 2. Matthew 2740. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Hmm. The exact same phrase. That's true, now, yeah. That's found in Matthew. Yeah. Uh, but it's exact same phrase as Satan uses in the temptation. Now Sometimes the gospels, I think, in this te- in the temptation account, can kind of help us interpret each other, mm-hmm. and by that I mean what Luke is said. What Luke says here is that Satan's not completely done. Yeah. Um. And Matthew shows us sort of where that occurs. We mm-hmm. see that a couple places in yeah. in Mark and in Matthew. We see that here, where the if you are the son of God, that taunting come those words come right from satan we also Mm -hmm. see that at peter's confession when um jesus when peter says you're the christ the son of the living god and as soon as jesus says essentially yeah you're right i'm the christ now here's what the christ is going to do he's going to suffer and die for your sins peter says no you're not that kind of christ and jesus says get behind me satan right your definition of the christ is 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 from satan so yeah. there, there's some of Satan's influence. So, yeah. so, Satan's influence is throughout the Gospels, um, but Luke is the only one that tells us that. Yeah. Something else that Luke helps us to see, that I think Matthew agrees with, but he doesn't say it. And that is, in the, um, in the when when uh, the devil offers to Jesus, um, the kingdoms of the world in verse mm-hmm. in Luke four six. Yes. He says, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. Mm -hmm. And Luke alone says, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Jesus doesn't say, no, it's not yours. You can't give it to anybody you want. It it only makes sense if that is true. Hmm. And Matthew doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. I think Matthew presumes that to be true. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then Luke continues, uh, it'll all be, uh, um, if you'll worship me, it'll all be yours. Um, And Jesus doesn't doesn't say, well, it's all mine anyhow, or it belongs to God, it's not yours. Um, I think what's happening here is that Jesus knows he's ultimately going to get all this stuff, Mm. when he comes to his messianic glory yes yeah and that's through the cross yes and satan is offering him to get these things now
0: without Mm. having to go through the cross Hmm. and
1: satan knows that yeah jesus knows that but my point earlier is look at the way these conclude is jesus says you shall learn in luke it says jesus um Jesus simply answers, you shall, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only, you shall serve. And then the devil ended every temptation until an opportune time. In Matthew, Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. He kicks him out. Yeah. And then gives the explanation. Yeah. You shall get the Lord your God, you shall worship uh, and him only shall you serve. Now nothing's changed about Jesus in verse ten, mm. so presumably he could have done that all the way back in verse one, right? While, while he's you know while he's hungry, and as soon as Satan shows up and says, "Hey, why don't you turn those rocks into bread?"
0: Yeah, he
1: could have told him that then. Nothing's changed. Yeah. So right. um, l- let's go back and mm-hmm. a couple other things. Well, why don't you you had something you were going to say? Go ahead.
0: Well, yeah, I. I... Uh, and this may be where you're you're headed with this anyway, but I I, I kind of wanted to talk about the nature of these three questions and the temptations that Jesus actually faced because I think the yeah. clearest one is the worship. Like that seems like such an obvious temptation to you know deviate from God's plan to you know, but the uh, I think it, it it's a little bit less clear why turning. Stones into bread is a temptation, I think. So I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about why that actually is a temptation.
1: Yeah. Well, let, let's go back and look at some of these in in their context. Yeah. Um, so, in and and again, make a couple observations about the differences between Matthew and Luke, and and mm-hmm. how they help us to understand each. In Matthew, Jesus is led up by the spirit in the wilderness. And there are some really subtle differences that we can miss, and it shows up in most translations. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, again, you gotta compare the same translation um, and in original languages it shows up too. Mm -hmm. But if you notice in Luke, it says he was full of the, he, he was, Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit uh, for forty days in the wilderness, comma, tempted by the devil. Mm-hmm. In Matthew, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Yes. What's the difference?
0: Well, it seems um, in Matthew that like the purpose of going There's a purpose. to the wilderness is exactly. to be tempted
1: to be tempted. So there's a, so Jesus is led by the spirit. So the spirit is the one who leads Jesus there in the first place Mm -hmm. for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. And in Luke's, it says that he ate nothing in those days. Matthew says that he fasted. So there's a difference between eating nothing and fasting, Mm. especially in Matthew. Matthew yep. equates fasting in the Sermon on the Mount with acts of righteousness. Right. So fasting, giving of alms and prayer. So, so this, is, this is not just, you know, he just stopped eating because he didn't have anything to eat. This was sure. a, this was an act of righteousness that Jesus was was actively doing. And that yeah. becomes important because in the rest of the temptation narrative, Jesus is extremely passive. I don't know if you've mm. ever noticed that, but when he goes from point A to point B, he doesn't go anywhere. He's taken somewhere. Sure. He doesn't look at something. He's shown something. Yeah. He's extremely passive. Um. So he's fasting, uh, forty days and forty nights. Matthew adds that forty days and forty nights. Well, what's that about? Does it just mean he's not snacking at night? Um. You know, hmm. there there are a couple of places where what Matthew does, he adds these phrases. Um, that cumulatively will add up to something. We'll, hmm. we'll look at that as, as we kind of go through uh, okay. of where he's sending us. He's, he's, he's building a portrait of Jesus in some, some respects. Mm. So the tempter comes to him. And if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread, loaves of bread. Um. So yeah. What's wrong with
0: that? Right. Um. We've seen water to wine already, you know.
1: Yeah. Although that's in John. Yeah. So, um, but it is written, man does not live by bread alone. And that's where Luke ends. Matthew continues the quotation, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yes. Now, what, is, what does he mean by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? What does that refer to?
0: I mean, I, was, I would assume that's referring to uh, basically the Old Testament, right? The so Old Testament, sure. Scripture. Yeah. Divine yeah.
1: revelation. Sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so what he's saying is you know, turning, you know, eating bread itself, of course, is not a sin. Uh, yeah. Jesus never uses his miracles to provide for himself. Not that mm-hmm. that, that necessarily would be a sin, but he never does that. Yeah. But the point here is that the 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 life-giving sustenance of Jesus provision is is not from bread. Yeah. But the life-giving sustenance of Jesus provision comes from the word of God. That's yeah. his point. Yeah. That's the contrast that he's that he's making here. So yeah. it's not that it would be a sin as much as he is making a point. Gotcha. And he's asking Jesus to use his son of God status to provide for his own physical needs. Mm-hmm. When Jesus is saying, my needs, I, I have needs that are greater than my physical needs. And I have the supernatural power to do what you're asking. But I have a higher need which is sustained by the provision that comes only by the supernatural power provided by the words of God. Right. That, that, and that's what I need. So yeah. he's responding in that way. So right. I, I don't think, and, and interpreters try to, well, providing for himself is just not what Jesus does. And that's true. Yeah. I, but I don't know that it would be a sin yeah. for Jesus to do that. Um, and I don't know that that's his point, yeah, uh, I think the point is that Satan is trying to get him to do something, and the way Jesus responds is everything right to draw and that that the thrust of Jesus' sustenance comes from not from not solely from bread, yeah, but from the saving power of God's word.
0: yeah now, is that the same kind of pattern we see in the next uh, two temptations as well?
1: Well, And the next one is really interesting, because here, Jesus interprets what Satan is doing for us by how he answers. Okay. Because then, I'm in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 4, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So, So how did Jesus get there?
0: Hmm.
1: Matthew doesn't tell us. Yeah. He doesn't. But all we know is that the scripture says the devil took him. We don't know how. Yeah. Somehow Jesus is passive and allows the devil to transport him to Jerusalem from Mm -hmm. the Judean desert.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And said to him, if you are the son of God. Throw yourself down. By the way, the pinnacle of the temple is just some precarious position. It might be on um, over the southern steps. It's mm. it's just it's dangerous. It's yeah. high. He's going to get killed if he, if he jumps. Yeah. Um, it's not an architectural feature, is my point. Right. right. Um, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then essentially Satan's, he's playing a chess match. Okay, you quoted scripture against me. I can quote scripture against you. Mm -hmm. For it is written, he will give his angels charge over you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And here's Jesus' answer, verse 7. Again, it is written you shall not tempt the Lord, your God. Now this is where our red flag should go flying up hmm. because what Jesus has just said is that what you're doing, Satan is your te- What you're telling me to do would test God. Yeah. Would tempt God. So if I did what you did, so whatever, whatever else Satan said, We can understand that what Jesus says is right. What Jesus says is always right in the Gospels. So what Jesus says is that what Satan told him to do would be Mm -hmm. tempting God. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So let's do a little bit of algebra, hermeneutical algebra. Let's see. Satan told Jesus, jump off the temple. And his rationale was, this Psalm says you can do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's see what this Psalm says. So this is Psalm 91. Let's go back to Psalm 91 and see where it says, if you're the son of God, you can jump off the temple and that's a good thing. And God's going to protect you. Yeah. And why Jesus says that jumping off the temple is testing the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to read through the whole Psalm. Okay. It's kind of long. It's it's 16 verses and I'm reading from the ESV. Okay. So bear with me here he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. Now this is a, this is a Psalm of worship. This means that the person who regularly dwells in the shelter of the most high, that means the person who is regularly going to Jerusalem Mm -hmm. and regularly participating in corporate worship in the temple will, uh, Have the protective care of God. That's what Psalm 91.1 means. Yeah. And then this is the psalmist's profession. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. God, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. It's part of a wing. Under his Mm. wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So, so what does this Psalm say about the angels rescuing this person? What, what does this person do that, that causes God to rescue him.
0: Well, there, are, you know, I mean, I, I'm reading the NASB, which, you know, has the word abide in it. in that first, uh, that first verse, Which that's what it seems like to me. It's like, this is a person who abides with God, you know, they have closeness with God and therefore God is a refuge and protects them.
1: Sure. It, it is a, it is a regular and customary and habitual faithfulness to God. And this is how God tends to respond to people who are in that covenantal relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, what is Satan asking Jesus to do?
0: Uh, Do something dangerous. And I think to test that, you know. Right. To to, To,
1: to, to, to instead of in the ordinary course, this psalm is addressing people in the ordinary course of covenant fidelity. Yeah. This is how God addresses this what Satan is asking Jesus to do is to step out of the ordinary course of covenant fidelity Mm -hmm. and force God's hand. Right. Yeah. It is sort of like, I don't know, jumping, uh, jumping in front of a car because you want the car to go somewhere else. You're, you're obligating. It's like I, I uh, once I played a friend in checkers and I didn't know he was a really good checkers player. I don't know if you ever played checkers, Mm. but Um, I I knew maybe uh, my skills in checkers advanced maybe to about second grade and then I stopped advancing and he was like a competitive checkers player online and he just it was so unnerving because he could make me do things I did not want to do right he would move his pieces and I had to do certain things and and that's exactly what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do do this so that God does that. You're obligating God and Satan call, and Jesus says, that is putting the Lord your God to the test and that is sin and I will not do that. That's what Jesus means when he says, Satan, what you're telling me to do, you're yanking that scripture out of context and you're telling me to obligate God and that is putting the Lord your God to the test. Fine, you quote scripture. Anybody can quote scripture. You're yanking it out of context to cause me to do that. Now, yeah. here's the really cool thing about that. Hmm. Remember how we said that the angels coming to, to to help uh, Jesus from Psalm ninety-one is from is is for somebody who is abiding in God. It mm-hmm. is a result that you can't manufacture. It is yeah. something that God does in response to simple everyday covenant fidelity. Look at how this how Matthew 4 ends. Mm. Matthew 4:11. Then the yeah. devil left him and behold angels came and were ministering to him. Yeah. So there is that uh, not obligated but there is that vindication, that validation. Yeah. That yes, he was that faithful abider of Psalm 91, but he was not that tester of the Lord that yeah. satan wanted him to be
0: yeah yeah it, it's it's interesting because i think if you read all of psalm 91 that another good example like you said like the 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 you know the the idea of stepping in front of a car to try to change its direction it it would be sillier to use this other image and that's probably why we don't see it here but like it would be the idea of going in messing with a lion or a cobra sure. assuming uh, no, I'm protected because, you know, God said uh, a lion can't hurt me or whatever, but that's not really, you're kind of missing the point if that's your interpretation of this, this passage that I can fight lions now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought about that too, as I was reading that. I'm like, nobody would yeah. really do that, would they?
0: Right. No, right Well,
1: But yeah, that's a good illustration too. Yeah.
0: So uh, that's two temptations. So let's look at the the third one in, in Matthew. Then the kind of sure um, uh, next in the in the progression.
1: Yeah, and you notice that um, in this one, Matthew uh, says the devil took him up to. Remember in Luke it says it just took him very. It took him up. It took him up. Yeah. And here it's up to a very high mountain. So what we have? So I mentioned earlier that there were some. Some words that are unique to Matthew that cumulatively point us somewhere. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We saw every word that proceeds from the mouth of God that was added, that was found in Matthew.
0: We saw, um, was it the 40 days and 40 nights? 40 days
1: and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. And here we see up on a high mountain. So on high mountain. Uh, 40 days and 40 nights and thinking of every word proceeding from the mouth of God. What this cumulatively points to is Moses receiving the 10 commandments on Mount Sinai mm. uh, Exodus chapter 23. Yeah. Um, and so what interpreters commonly recognize is that in a sense, Jesus is presented being presented here as a new Moses. Mm. Um, and what, what exactly that means um. Is somewhat debated. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people will say, well, he's becoming a new lawgiver. Well, he's not really a new lawgiver. Um, right. Because I don't think in the Sermon on the Mount, which is coming up pretty soon, he's not really giving a new law. He's, yeah. he's really explaining the old one. Right. Um, but that, that's cumulatively, that's, I think, what he's pointing to. He's also mm-hmm. quoting from Deuteronomy, um, all these places, mm-hmm. which is where Israel has failed yeah. So in a sense he's like a son of God. Israel was considered a son of God. Mm-hmm. Um and is succeeding where the son of God had failed in the Old Testament. Yeah. But at the end of the day Jesus is not like Moses. He's similar to Moses but not like Moses. Yeah. Um he he's not dying for anybody's Moses never died for anybody's sins. Right. Um he's similar to Israel but he's not like Israel. He's not the embodiment of Israel. He's not a corporate person. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately his son of Godness is entirely unique. Yeah. Um, as the Emmanuel. Um, but when we, when we get to, te- to the final temptation, the opportunity or the question about his son of Godness is dropped. Right. There's no, there's no question about if you are the son of God, he's taken to a high mountain He's shown all the kingdoms of the world, and their uh, and their glory. How on earth Satan did this, we don't know. Yeah. And for Matthew's purpose, so we're trying to try to understand what Matthew's communicating to his readers. We can only assume that Matthew has told us everything we need to know. Mm-hmm. So if Matthew didn't tell us, we don't need to know. I mean, okay. I'd be really curious. But we yeah. don't need to know, yeah, to understand what he's trying to say to his readers. What we do need to know is that Jesus offered the kingdoms and their glory, and presumably that was a that that had some appeal that was so appealing to Jesus, at least in the mind of Satan, that Satan offers these to Jesus. I will give these to you. All you need to do is work, fall down, and worship me. And that that somehow that Satan thought that there was a realistic possibility of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now you might say, "Well, Satan's a liar, so why would he even think that that's a possibility? How mm-hmm. is this a temptation if Satan if that's not even a possibility?" Well, again, I think that the possibility is that Jesus knows what is in front of him, that he knows that the that that the the kingdoms. And um, all their glory is going to be his Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yeah. Um, And I think this is partially hinted at uh, at the Great Commission when he says all authority Mm -hmm. in heaven and earth has been given to me Mm -hmm. and so forth. So what Jesus doesn't hadn't yet fully experienced is he's going to get the wrath of the father. I mean it's one thing to say I'm going to be crucified yeah uh which he does know about and he does disclose yeah. to his disciples but for Satan to in a sense say you can avert the wrath of the father uh the the eternal wrath of the father now by simply bowing down and and worshipping me um and get what you are going to get anyhow mm-hmm. um I that in, in that sense I think this becomes a real temptation. Yeah, for sure. But the response is again, as we said before, Jesus first commands what he mm-hmm. could have commanded before, and then gives the rationale. The command to be gone, Satan. It, the rationale is the the worship is exclusive, exclusively due to the Lord his God.
0: Yeah. And what's powerful, I think, about that, like we kind of already said, is like the follow-up verse to that is like, then the devil leaves and the angels come to minister to him, which kind of reflects that Psalm 91 idea. Yeah.
1: And that throughout, and and here's something that I I, I want to move a little further to. Uh, we've said that this says something profound about Jesus, and it does. Um, it says that Jesus is the... Is the the tried and true son of God. Yeah. Um, tested in every way and yet without sin. Mm-hmm. He's been tested in ways that you and I have never been tested. Yeah. And with pressures that you and I will never experience. And so as the author of Hebrews says, and so he's able to sympathize with us and our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he he has all of this authority and all this power to drive away Satan with two words,
0: mm-hmm.
1: be gone, Satan. And yet he allows himself to be parried about by Satan to be shown all these things. Hmm. And the, the only means by which he combats Satan in this entire confrontation is with Scripture. Yeah. And I take tremendous encouragement from that. So hmm. here... If we, if we believe Paul in Colossians 1, Jesus sustains all, he created the entire universe and he sustains all things with his powerful word. So Satan's telling him to turn these rocks into bread and Jesus made those rocks. And, and, um, and Jesus could have done anything he wanted to mm. and he chose to use scripture. And yeah. that's something that you and I can do This is compelling for me to do scripture memory Hmm. and to hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him and to use it in my struggle against sin and to take Mm -hmm. it seriously. And if Jesus, the son of God, when combating Satan face to face, the only time that we really see in the Gospels feels it's a suitable tool to combat Satan. Uh, the only tool that he uses to combat Satan, um, I, I think, that's compelling evidence for me, yeah, and, and a good motivation to to memorize scripture.
0: Yeah. Now, do you feel like that's a good? Uh, I mean, one of the things we've been wanting to talk about as we've been kind of preparing, you know, this podcast and how we want to talk about this is how how should a person read the Gospels? How should you know a, 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 in a church context? How should we approach? reading the gospels and we've kind of made that step a little bit here in like how you kind of interpret this passage but could you kind of unpack that a little bit for me like how how what, what's the process like for a person reading this to kind of get to that conclusion
1: yeah I, I don't think that that saying that this is a model for me is the primary way to apply it mm. in other words um i i think that the 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 primary Uh, purpose of the Gospels are to tell, tell us things about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the primary application, I think the primary application is to build us up in confidence about who Jesus is Mm -hmm. and what he's done for us. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that whenever we pray to him, whenever we ask him for things, whenever we wonder whether he is sufficient to pay for our sins, whether, um, he has the, um, authority with the father or the good, the good standing with the father to be our high priest, uh, to make appeals on our behalf. We, we have a, we have a great deal of confidence, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, in terms of that standing. So that's where I say, uh, what I've done with the, so what I've done in terms of application is really two ways. One one is to look at what it says about Jesus and then how to how to turn that um, that teaching about Jesus and apply that teaching about Jesus to to the church today yeah and that's where I say it's primarily about Jesus being the Son of God and then how do those truths about the Son of God apply in church context and in yeah. the walk of faith yeah um, and then are there, other aspects secondary aspects that we can glean from this that might be picked up by an original reader that can also transfer to us today so i i think things like um just uh, good examples are there good examples Mm. that that can be illustrative and so i think is certainly a good example is internalizing scripture
0: yeah
1: um but i don't i also don't think that this is necessarily a blueprint um, Matt, I don't think Matthew's giving right. us a blueprint for how to combat Satan in spiritual warfare. I would look for clear scripture to articulate this kind of thing. So yeah. we think of um, putting on the spiritual, the full armor mm. of God, and those sorts of
0: things. Yeah, yeah. So would you say it's fair then? And 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 correct me if I'm if I'm maybe overstating this or something, but maybe part of or maybe a good first step then for someone reading the gospels is to change their orientation a little bit and don't approach the text saying, what is, what is for me in this text? What am I going to get out of this text? And maybe changing the question more like, especially in the gospels, like what is the text telling me about Jesus? That's the first question. And then when you kind of answer that question, you start picking out different things like that. Like you can kind of start seeing maybe more of a, um, what that may mean to me in terms of if this is true about Jesus, how does this affect my life?
1: Well, I think that maybe even we could even take it a step further Hmm. and let's just say, for example, you, you turn on a national geographic um, biography and you find out somebody from the middle ages. And let's just say, you never even heard from this, this, this guy. And he wrote this letter to, uh, to his love interest. And, And it's really moving. And you never heard of either one of them before. And the only thing you know about them is from this love letter. And you're going to really pay attention to that. And you're going to think, oh, that's really interesting. He thought this and he thought that. And it tells you a lot about his personality. tells you a lot about him. There's something to be said for reading the New Testament first, like you paid attention to that love letter. Hmm. Um, Because in a real sense, we're reading something that was written to somebody else from somebody else. Yeah. So when we read Galatians, we're reading somebody else's mail. Yeah. So that's where I'd say let's see what let's think first of all what Matthew's saying b- because we tend to think of Jesus so personally, which is good. Yeah. But we tend to th- we we gravitate towards, you know, if we're towards if if we're very relational, we tend to we tend to only see the relational aspects of Jesus. If mm. we're if we tend to be very rational we tend to see only the 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 rational aspects of Jesus. So yeah. we tend to see ourselves and and that that causes us to miss so much. Yeah. So if we if we can just step back long enough to just ask ourselves what is Matthew saying to his original readers about Jesus? Mm-hmm. Let's just list and I know that sounds kind of cold and calculating and historical, but I think that if we can do that for just a few minutes in our first step, we can distance ourselves from the text just, uh, just for a few minutes long enough to read it a little bit more clearly, hmm. uh, to understand what the author says, and then sort of re-engage it in a way that'll help us to see it more clearly.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe as we kind of wrap this up, we can, we can summarize that a bit for this passage for, for Matthew 4. So, so what is the big idea here?
1: The big idea is that Jesus is the tested, tried, and true Son of God.
0: Mm. I love that. I think that's a that's a great way to wrap things up uh, today. And uh, what we should say for uh, for next time is join us again. We'll uh, you know maybe we can figure out what passage we want to talk about and give people a little homework.
1: Sure. How about we go? Uh, you and I have looked a fair amount at the stilling of the storm, yeah. and let's sort of as a as a teaser um that's as we talk about um conceptions and misconceptions that's one that that uh and a lot of people sort of go to and their first response is what does this mean to me Mm. and i wonder if listeners would maybe take a few minutes and think what is matthew trying to say matthew mark luke trying to say to the original readers if You sort of start there before you start thinking about what it might mean to you in the first step. Um, If you might be able to see it through a different set of eyes. And we'll look forward to talking about that next time and um, see if you might see something that's both different and a lot
0: more profound. That's good. We've got the passage and we've got the uh, we've got the task. So read the Bible and uh, catch up with us next time.